Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus chapter 8, and join me in prayer for a moment as we turn our hearts toward the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, so much for those three precious souls that at, at the exact moment that you ordained from the foundation of the world, you spoke into the darkness of their hearts, and you brought them to newness of life. You made them to be born again. As First Peter 1 says, that we were made born again. And you regenerated them. You gave them the faith to believe, and you gave them the spiritual eyes to see that only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one will come to you except through him, that he is fully God, fully man, and as such may represent us. Lord, I thank you for those souls. I, I praise you, Lord, that you saved them at such a young age and that they have a lifetime ahead of them to follow Christ. What a joy and what a delight. And Lord, now as we turn to your word and as we look into the Old Testament, we pray, Lord, to see um, the glory of your law, the glory of how deeply you love us to give us a revelation of yourself. We pray that you would touch our hearts tonight, that you would make us more like Christ, that you would lead us to follow you um, with greater diligence. And if any who are here, Lord, who do not yet know you as Savior, might this be the night that you reach into their hearts, open the eyes of their heart to see the goodness and the greatness of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. One of the things I decided not to do in life, which I'm very happy about, was to go to law school. I think that was a good choice. But the, the great test for the student graduating from law school is to pass the bar exam. And that is apparently, even among any other field, that is the test of all tests. It takes two full days to complete, some 12 to 14 hours, depending on what state you're in. But when you pass the bar exam, what does that qualify you to do exactly? Well, if you've ever been in a courtroom, there is a rail, a bar, which separates the people from the judge. And passing the bar exam, or we could call it the rail exam, I guess, is what gives you the privilege to pass as a mediator, as an advocate beyond the bar, and to move freely from the people to the judge and back and forth. This is one of the foundations of our judicial system and passing beyond the bar without permission. In fact, can get you ejected from the courtroom or even arrested. And in fact, for those who have passed the bar exam, those who are permitted beyond the bar, the attorneys representing their clients, there's a strict code of conduct, and violating that code of conduct can get even the qualified representative thrown out of court or even charged with a misdemeanor, in some cases a felony. It's a big deal. Our justice system is based on a system of mediation which insists upon qualified mediators. And this is, I believe, a good way to think of the mediation system which God set up for Israel, which is our concern this evening. And just as a little review in our study of the whole Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we, we remember that God is going to offer salvation from sin to the entire world, to every people group. That is through the Abrahamic covenant that we studied all the way back in Genesis. And his means for doing so, his means for getting the good news of salvation to the entire world will be through a chosen nation, a set-apart nation, a holy nation. And that's the key word in Leviticus, that this nation is to be holy unto him, set apart, 
They're to be holy to God. They're to be holy as far as the world is concerned, meaning they're different. They're, they're apart from the world. And to illustrate and to facilitate this holiness and to facilitate Israel being able to commune with God and to fellowship with her God, God set up the sacrificial system in which a worshiper may keep a right covenant relationship with God. And to facilitate or to mediate this sacrificial system, he appointed priests. And not just anybody can be a priest. They must be chosen by God. They must be qualified. They must be set apart. They must be consecrated. Or the term that we'll see tonight that we're probably most familiar with, they must be ordained. They must be different. And so tonight we're going to look at Leviticus 8, 9, and 10. Really a very simple text. And I have a very simple two-part outline for tonight. First, I want to look at the framework of the mediators. The framework of the mediators, the setting up of the mediatorial system. And I just want to briefly walk through this with you to give a, a basic understanding. It's not super complex, but we need this understanding to really get to the second part of my outline for this evening. Leviticus 8, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So now the focus is on the brother of Moses, Aaron, and all of Aaron's sons. There's four of them. They're to be the very first priests of Israel, the mediators through whom people may be able to worship God. And we already looked in detail at the sacrificial system last time. I won't repeat that. But needless to say, it is the priesthood. It is starting off these five men who are the, the bridge between people and God. They are the mediators. And now comes the moment when these men are officially set apart, officially consecrated as God's servants. Now, all of chapter 8 takes place in public. All the people are gathered here. They're at the entrance to the tent of meeting, just outside that barrier, you remember, which separates the people from the tabernacle. And this is the ordination. This is the setting apart of the priest for the service to God. And there are some steps to their consecration. This is not, this is not something that is just done glibly, done without any forethought. Here are the steps, verses 5 and 6. They must be physically clean. They have to be washed first, and so they, they're, they're washed. Verses 7 through 9, they have to be properly dressed. You have the official garments of the priesthood, and they're, they're specific, and they are priestly, and they're different. Nobody is dressed like the priest. And then verses 10 through 13, you have the anointing, the, the special oil that we saw all the way back in Exodus chapter 30, which was set apart and made only for this purpose to set apart both people and things for worship. And so this was showing that they are now set apart. That act of anointing them, of placing that oil on them, says this is the moment that you are set apart. And so you would say, great, we're ready to go. The sacrificial system is now in place. No. Almost the rest of chapter 8 now deals with offerings for the sins of the priests. They have to be spiritually purified. So they have to be physically clean, properly dressed, properly set apart, and spiritually purified. And so there's this long section dealing with their sin, the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. And all through this section, we see some key words, and we won't take the time to read the entire text, but 
there's a couple of key words that you would see several times. Verse 10, for example, we see the word consecration. They are consecrated. This is a Hebrew word most often translated holy or holiness. They are made holy. They are set apart. They are different. They are not for normal use. This is not a guy who goes and plows a field and takes care of sheep and then goes and acts like a priest. He's a priest and a priest only. So another key word we see, the word ordain or ordination. We see, for example, in verse 22, And this is an interesting word. It means literally to fill something up. It can also mean to set something up. It can mean to install something. And this was a very big deal. Look how big a deal this is. All the way in verse 33 of chapter 8. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. It took a whole week to set somebody apart. And so... There's a, there's a richness to this. There's a, 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 large, a large emphasis here. But this is a rich idea. This isn't just, okay, you used to be a farmer and now you're a priest. There's something so rich here. The idea of ordination, and this particular Hebrew word that's used here, is often rendered with the Hebrew phrase, to fill the hand. Remember I said that it partly means to fill Well, it's very often put together with the Hebrew word for hand, to fill the hand. What does this mean? Well, it can mean a couple of things that most scholars agree on. First of all, it speaks of filling your hands with the life of serving God. That this is your life now. This isn't a hobby. It's not a pastime. It is a a preoccupation. It's not a job. It is a calling. Sometimes somebody will ask me, how do you like the job of being a pastor? And I say, I don't know. I've never had a job of being a pastor. I have a calling to be a pastor, but I've never had a job to be a pastor. It is a calling. But it's not just the idea of filling your life with the calling of God. It also expresses the idea that the hand of the priest is filled by means of the sacrifices and the giving of the people. In other words, he doesn't go out and earn a wage. He receives from the people because he serves as their mediator. And so ordination means filling your life in every way possible with the ministry of the Lord. Now, in the church of Jesus Christ, we don't have a priesthood. We don't need a priesthood. But there is a calling. There is a testing and an ordination, a setting apart to the specific task of gospel ministry. 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul tells Timothy, do not be hasty on the laying on of hands. What is that? Well, that's speaking of the practice of laying on hands on the man who's called apart to leadership or to gospel ministry. There is to be a testing time. There is to be a training time. There is to be an approval time of men set apart for the ministry. As a matter of fact, both Old Testament and New Testament agree on the term of one called and set apart. And that term is, it's a technical term, the man of God. The man of God is the one, both Old Testament and New Testament, who's ordained, set apart to the ministry before the Lord, And so you can see why a man doesn't just get to decide that he's a spiritual leader. That's not his decision to make. It's imparted to him. It's recognized by other spiritual leaders, other qualified leaders. And notice this, chapter 8, verse 23. Verse 22, rather. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it. 
And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. So you can picture this. There's a big dripping blood splot on, on one lobe of the ear, on the thumb of the hand, and on the big toe of the foot. Now, what is this? Well, there's clear symbolism involved here, which other parts of Scripture make clear. You have blood on the ear. There are many places in the Old Testament speak of the prophets or the representatives of God hearing the word of the Lord to impart to the people. And what is always the great admonition to those who represent God to people? It is speak accurately. What you hear, say only those things. And then the blood on the hands. You must have spiritually clean hands to walk in the presence of the Lord. Uh, Psalm 24 tells us this. And then how about blood on the feet? You must walk blamelessly before God when you stand in his holy place. Psalm 24 says that as well. Psalm 15, who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? The one whose walk is blameless. And so the hearing and the speaking and the doing, what you do, clean hands, how you walk, how you live. All these things are now covered because these are sinful men who must have their sins atoned for. And so ordination is complete. It's done. And now we get to chapter 9. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. Okay, wait a minute. We just offered a bunch of sacrifices for Aaron and his sons. What are we doing now? No, those were the sacrifices just to keep them from dying in the middle of ordination. Now we have to offer sacrifices for them to keep them from dying in the middle of serving the Lord. And so we do this all over again. And for most of verses 1 through 14 of chapter 9, after ordination is complete, again now the high priest Aaron must offer a sin offering and a burnt offering for himself. And then and only then, beginning in verse 15, can he present the people's offering. Then and only then could he bless the people and could they commune with God as he accepted their sacrifices. And now we have really the, the inauguration and the great uh, beginning of the glorious sacrificial system. Leviticus 9, verse 23, climactically, and, the, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burned offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. The glorious sacrificial system is now in place. There are qualified men, ordained mediators in the role of priests. And everything's going to be great now, right? You get, by my measure, about four millimeters of greatness. It's that little white space between the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 because some of the boys decided to get creative. Chapter 10, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron Held his peace. Didn't take long, did it? Now we have this unauthorized fire 
nobody really knows what that is. Probably the most likely candidate is the incense, which were to be burned right at the entrance to the Holy of Holies on the incense altar. And they were to be made of a specific recipe as outlined in Exodus chapter 30. And perhaps they altered that recipe because there's warnings there. Don't alter it. Don't use it for anything else. But there are lots of theories about the nature of this unauthorized fire, and they are only theories. And I think it's very wise on the part of the Lord to make this vague. Because if we knew precisely the nature of their disobedience, I think we would focus on that detail instead of on the general principle of mediators follow orders. And they didn't. Once in a while, a wise parent will punish a child and simply say, obey me next time, without specifying the crime that was actually committed. Because what does that do for the child? That, that makes the child begin searching his memory. Was it this? Did I do that? How was that? I better just be careful on everything. And so because this is unspecified, it calls us to be careful. And as Pastor Darren preached such a wonderful sermon that's steadfast from this passage, we don't get to make stuff up. We don't get to decide, here's how I feel like I might worship God. God has determined how we worship God, and we worship him in those ways and those ways only. Whatever it was, it was serious enough to merit an instant death sentence. Verses 4 and 5, Moses had some of his relatives carry the bodies outside of the camp. I don't think you could ask anybody else, so he got some relatives. And look at the priority of holiness before God, Aaron the father of these two men who have just died, that he's just witnessed the violent death of his two sons. But look how prioritized holiness is. Verse 6, And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. He just said, you will not grieve publicly because this moment is not about you. That's tough. But that's because the holiness of God trumps everything. And then still keeping holiness the priority, God instructs Aaron concerning the lofty calling of the priesthood. What a moment to teach him. Verse 8 And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. They were never to have even the possibility of serving the Lord while impaired in any way. Isn't that sad? that they're sinful enough that God has to say, hey, don't get drunk when you go to teach the people. Don't be a drunk. This reminds me of the advice of a mother to a future king. Very similar advice in Proverbs 31, 4, and 5. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. For both the priests and then in Proverbs 31, for a king, your calling is too high for you to be idiotic and and being inebriated at any time for any reason well now something unusual happens and we wonder why this is kind of dropped in here something unexpected after moses gives aaron 
and his two surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. He gives them instructions about what to do with certain offerings. Moses asks this question, what happened to the goat from the sin offering? Now, why is that stuck in here? Well, let's see what he says. Verse 16, now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. The priests were supposed to eat the sin offering, instead of burning the whole thing. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, probably the best reason here, in the ancient Near East, everybody kind of knew something. Uh, Among all the systems of pagan idol worship, everybody knew that when you make a sacrifice to your God, that particular sacrifice, and this is pagan thinking, that particular sacrifice, that meat, those body parts now become magical. And they become powerful. And so, generally speaking, in pagan sacrificial systems, when a sacrifice was made, it was completely burned up. It was totally consumed so that someone couldn't come along and and grab a leg and use some sort of black magic or, or dark power to do something wicked or do something evil. So they burnt up the entire sacrifice. But by commanding that the sin offering be eaten, taken into themselves instead of totally destroyed, it's very clear here that sin isn't cleansed by a ritual. Sin isn't cleansed by the outward, but sin is cleansed by God himself. He's the one who's making atonement. And so he is, he is angry. Moses says, why didn't you do what I said? Why did you go back to old ways? Now, this is interesting So far, Aaron, with his sons, is 0 for 4 in obedience. All four have disobeyed the Lord in their duties. But what's the difference between Nadab and Abihu, who who were executed for their miscalculation, and Eleazar and Ithamar, who were reprimanded for their miscalculation? Well, there's two reasons we can identify. One is implied and one is directly stated. The implied reason is that God knows the hearts of men. He knows people's hearts. Nadab and Abihu were treated as rebels who thought they could improve on God's commands. And apparently there was more grace given to Eleazar and Ithamar. The second reason is the one that's stated directly, and that's the circumstances of the moment. Look at verse 19 of chapter 10. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. And yet such things as these have happened to, to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Aaron genuinely, in his heart, believed, and certainly had instructed his remaining two sons in the same way, he genuinely believed in his heart that had he eaten of the sin offering while his heart was in such sorrow and in such grief over the loss of his two other sons, that that would have been displeasing to the Lord. And so while he did the wrong thing, his motive was right. And that's why Moses relents. When Moses heard that, he approved. So that's the framework of the mediators. But you've already noticed 
that they began having problems immediately. There, there's no two, three, or five, or ten chapters of glorious, perfect obedience. Like I said, you get about four millimeters, and that's it, the, the white space. So what I want to look at now, then, is the failure of the mediators. The failure of the mediators. How did they fail? We've been through the text. I'm just going to give you a list. There's at least ten ways they failed. I'll, I'll only give you ten. First, they failed to resist temptation. They failed to resist temptation. Nadab and Abihu were tempted to add to God's requirements for worship, to go outside what they were taught, to improve on God's commands. And they apparently did so with a rebellious heart because God slew them in front of their father and uncle in a horrible, fiery death. Eleazar and Ithamar were apparently tempted to go back to pagan practice, practices with which they were familiar in in completing a burnt offering that had been commanded to, to be eaten. They, they burned it completely instead of eating the portions that were commanded. They were taking it on themselves to be overly careful. If I could put it this way, Nadab and the Baihu decided to be under careful, and the other two decided to be overly careful, which was, in essence, now placing more weight and more importance on the sacrifice itself than on the God to whom sacrifice was made. I mean, the ink on Leviticus 9, isn't even dry before these men deviate from God's plan and give in to their fleshly temptations. I get to talk to new believers a lot, and I love that. And I love when new believers have this expectation that now that I'm a Christian, it's going to be so easy not to sin. And all of us who have been in Christ for a while, we kind of chuckle and say, yeah, let's see how that goes. Because it seems just moments after coming to faith in Christ, we sin. And we have this problem still. These are men who are supposed to be set apart. They're ordained. They're supposed to be different. They're supposed to be the example. And the very first example they set was change the word of God and doubt the word of God. And I imagine in eternity, Aaron speaking to his four sons and saying, nice, that was really good. Thanks, guys. But they failed. The second way they failed, they failed to unconditionally obey. They fail to unconditionally obey. Let's assume for a moment that perhaps it is the incense fire which Nadab and Abihu offered. I want to show you something. Keep your finger here and turn it back to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, verse 34. And in what may be a first and a last from the pulpit, I'm going to read you a recipe. Exodus 30, verse 34. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacte and anica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense of each there shall be an equal part and make an incense blended as by the perfumer seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and shall put, put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. What's missing here? What's missing is any explanation whatsoever as to why. Well, why can't we add a little of this? How about a little of that? Look, I got a bottle of, of this stuff left over from last year. It would go really well in here. There's no explanation. God simply says, if you're part of my covenant, do what I say. 
God isn't obligated to explain himself, but his people, and especially his appointed mediators, are obligated by covenant to carry out his wishes. We can go back to Leviticus now. So they failed to unconditionally obey. Whatever the, the offense was, it was something they knew to do and chose not to. Here's a third way they failed. They failed to maintain the priesthood. They failed to maintain the priesthood. If the white space between chapter 9 and 10 is in the indication, apparently Nadab and Abihu were priests for about five minutes. Whatever the time period was, it was short. They were priests for a very short time before they already failed. They didn't maintain the purity of the priesthood. And let me give you a, let me give you a contrast. It makes us think of the Apostle Paul's victorious declaration at the very end of his life concerning his ministry. He said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's what Nadab and Abihu should have been able to say, but they just immediately went off the rails. Nadab and Abihu disgraced their office of mediator right from the beginning. Here's a fourth way they failed. The priesthood failed to minister continually. They failed to minister continually. The high priest could enter the most holy place, the throne room of God, only one time per year on the Day of Atonement. And even then, you remember how he was to be dressed? Look at Leviticus chapter 8, verse 9. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. What was to be on the golden plate? All the way back in Exodus 28, you don't have to turn there, verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, holy to the Lord. What was this for? Well, it served as a reminder, so to speak, to God that when Aaron, that one time of the year, when he opened the veil, opened the curtain into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, that the first thing from a human standpoint God would see is a big golden plate that says, Holy to the Lord. And in that way, for just a few minutes, one time a year, Aaron could enter into the presence of God. But can you imagine this? The highest of all the priests of God could only enter his actual presence that one time annually. The rest of the time he was removed. He was distant. He wasn't as distant as all the people, but he was distant nonetheless. And so he could not minister continually. He failed. There's another failure. The mediators failed to remove sin's curse. They failed to remove sin's curse. Chapter 9, verse 15 we see the sin offering for the people. Chapter 9, verse 16, the burnt offering for the people. Chapter 9, verse 17, the grain offering for the people. And chapter 9, verse 18, the peace offering. And remember how the people celebrated that through the sacrifice they had communion with God, they had fellowship with God at some level. Verse 24, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. The priests did what they could. They did what God commanded. But ultimately, why would that fall flat? Because they had to do it again and again and again and again. All they could do as the mediators was to facilitate the bringing of the sacrifices. They could do nothing about sin themselves. They were powerless against the fall of man. They were powerless against the curse of sin. As a matter of fact, they couldn't even deal with their own sin. 
They had to have repeated sacrifices for themselves before they could serve the people. They failed to remove sin's curse. Similarly, the sixth way they failed, they failed to change hearts. They failed to change hearts. Here's God's ultimate goal for the hearts of all of his people of every age. This is his goal. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. In other words, his goal is to have worshipers who worship from a pure heart, not outwardly. But the priests couldn't change hearts. They were absolutely powerless. They couldn't make anybody's heart different. And just like the preacher in the church can't change anybody's heart, I'm powerless. I cannot make you think anything. I cannot make you believe anything. I am utterly powerless. It is only the Holy Spirit through the word of God that can make those changes. How else did the priests fail? Here's the seventh way they failed. They failed to fully represent the people or God. They failed on both counts. They failed to fully represent the people or God. If the priests were to fully represent the people in a one-for-one representation, they must then personally satisfy all the demands of God for a forgiven people. What's the only way that they possibly could have had a one-for-one representation truly representing the need of of the people? They would have to offer themselves. They would have to sacrifice themselves. But God didn't want them. They were sinful. They were impure. They couldn't be the sacrifice. They couldn't represent the people. Well, they couldn't represent God either. If priests are going to represent God, how should they act? They should act like God. They must act like God in every way. And yet on day one, they proved they couldn't do this. They utterly failed. They couldn't represent the people. They couldn't represent God. How else did they fail? The eighth way is they failed to complete atonement. They failed to complete atonement. The, the sacrifices were unable to fully atone for sin. Atonement deals with the satisfaction of God, with the covering of sin. And this was never fully satisfied because sins were never truly taken away. In fact, Hebrews 10 verse 11 tells us, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It was a temporary covering. It was duct tape over a car that's about to die. That's all it was. They couldn't complete atonement. There's another way they failed. They failed to sanctify worshipers. They failed to sanctify worshipers. What do I mean by sanctify? They could not prepare a single worshiper to go to heaven. They were unable to do that. They couldn't set apart a single person to be guaranteed future salvation. Even Ithamar and Eleazar, they couldn't think straight for themselves, much less be able to prepare another person for heaven. And you say, well, how about Aaron, the high priest? You mean golden calf man? They couldn't do it. They couldn't prepare a single soul for heaven. They couldn't sanctify anyone. One more way that they failed. They failed to open full access to God. They failed to open full access to God. The high priest himself could only enter the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God, once a year. The other priests could never enter the Holy of Holies. They could enter the outer holy place, but not the Holy of Holies. And the common people couldn't go into either one. In other words, the high priest might go in once a year to the presence of God, but he was not permitted 
to invite anyone else to do so. Can you imagine that? For all of the lifetime of his service, Aaron could never say, come with me to see the glory of God at his throne in the Holy of Holies. He never brought anyone with him. The common Israelite just stood outside the tent and just wished and just wondered. The mediators failed. They were incapable of doing the job necessary to create total restoration and communion between God and mankind. Just to put it all together, they failed to resist temptation, to unconditionally obey, to maintain the priesthood, to minister continually, to remove sin's curse, to change hearts, to fully represent the people or God, to complete atonement. They failed to sanctify worshipers, and they failed to open full access to God. Now, I know you, Grace Bible Church faithful Sunday night attendees, and you've got a yearning, you've got news, you know something. Because doesn't the failure of the human mediators create an eagerness in you to say, come on, pick up your Bible, just turn a few pages ahead, and you want to cry out to Israel, oh, let me show you someone. Let me show you someone. Where do we go to see the perfect mediator? We go to the book of Hebrews. And let's turn there together to see, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to just bounce through this briefly. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. And how will Jesus do in those 10 areas in which the first mediators failed? What was the first one? Jesus perfectly resisted temptation. He perfectly resisted temptation. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and look at that phrase, yet without sin. Jesus resisted every temptation Satan could throw at him, including, by the way, would you like to rule the world and own everything? And he resisted. He felt every pain we can feel except one, and that is regret. And he demonstrated that he is the perfect mediator. He perfectly resisted temptation. Jesus perfectly, unconditionally obeyed. He perfectly, unconditionally obeyed. Look at chapter 5, beginning of verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The father was about to ask him to die. He was about to ask him to bear the wrath of God, and Jesus did it. It says he learned obedience in the sense of he proved that he could live it out perfectly. He did everything that was asked of him. Third. Jesus perfectly maintained the priesthood. He perfectly maintained the priesthood. Look at chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 20. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus will now always and forever be the high priest of God. He will always be the mediator. 
Here's a fourth way he was the perfect mediator. Jesus perfectly ministers continually. He perfectly ministers continually. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that God set up, not man. And how long will he be there? Look back at chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The intercession of Christ is continual. He never lets up in his defense of your salvation. He will ask the Father for your salvation every moment of every day up until that moment when you are finally safely home. How about this one? Jesus perfectly removed sin's curse. He perfectly removed sin's curse. Chapter 9, look with me at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What does that mean? It means he's removed the curse. It means the curse of sin, while it seems to be holding on to you right now, it's dying and it will die. And you will live. How about this one? Number six, Jesus perfectly changes hearts. He perfectly changes hearts. Chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Why do you love to obey Christ? Because he purified your heart so that you want to. I don't have to tell a Christian you should want to obey Christ. Christians want to obey Christ because they're Christians. How about this one? Number seven. Jesus perfectly, fully represents the people and God. He perfectly represents the people and God. Chapter nine still, verse 24 For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. How is it that he is able to perfectly represent the people? Because he is fully human and never sinned one time. Therefore, he's a perfect human representative. And how is it that he is fully able to represent God? Because he is fully God. He is fully man, fully God. He is welcome into the presence of God and as the only perfect human being in all history. Therefore, he perfectly represents both. How about this one? Number eight, Jesus perfectly completed atonement. He perfectly completed atonement. Same chapter, chapter nine. Look with me at verse 26. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of of himself. Do you see that key phrase? Once for all. Verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He perfectly completed atonement. You will never, ever, ever have to ask God to save you again. Not one time. And this is good news for us. I I grew up in an Armenian uh, family and household. I mean, Armenian, not just capital A, but all caps. 
all the way across. And here's what I was taught. I was taught when I was a little boy, my parents and my family called me Stevie. And they would say, Stevie, at the end of every day, you should pray and make sure that you're saved. And I spent years terrified at the end of every day that perhaps that was the day I had so displeased God that he would not receive me back. And I, I like to joke that from the ages of about 5 to 17, I got saved 10,000 times. But you know what the Bible tells me is that Jesus has already completed my atonement once, and it's done. Number nine, Jesus perfectly sanctifies worshipers. He perfectly sanctifies worshipers. Did you know that Jesus has prepared you for heaven? You're prepared right now. You could walk out in this parking lot and drop dead at this moment, and you're ready to go. There's nothing else for you to do. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. This is, this is epic. For by a single offering, that's Christ, he has perfected, who? You, for all time. How long is that? That's forever. Those who are being sanctified. You will be perfected for all time, meaning that God, through Christ, has perfectly sanctified you as a worshiper, and you will be that forever. Forever, forever, forever. And one more, this is my favorite. Jesus perfectly opened full access to God. He perfectly opened full access to God. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Or as Hebrews chapter 4 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. What is the throne of grace? That is the very holy of holies. Unlike Aaron, Jesus not just moves the veil aside, he tore it apart at the cross and says, come on in, has invited all of us. If heaven has a bar exam, only Jesus has passed it and he alone can mediate for you so that you too can enter with confidence into the throne of grace. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, what a tremendous text for us. We see both the, the glory of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament set up under the covenant given to Moses, the Old Covenant, and yet while it is glorious, we immediately see how it falls short of the New Covenant. We immediately see how it falls short of the perfection of Christ. And the Old Covenant very much, as the New Testament tells us, the Old Covenant very much has the, the purpose of bringing us to a point of desperation, of saying, I can't obey the law. I can't be holy. I can't be ready for heaven. I can't offer enough sacrifices. I can't do enough for God. I can't do enough good works. And it brings us to the end of ourselves. And when we fall on our faces then hopeless, because we have sinned against you so many countless ways, count, so many countless ways that Revelation 20 says that entire books have been written with our sins in them. And when we come to the end of ourselves and we fall at your feet and say, it's hopeless, I cannot please you. 
Jesus Christ steps in. And if we would but repent and say, I am a sinner. I cannot pay for my own sin. I need a mediator. Then Jesus Christ in his goodness and in his kindness offers to die the death that we deserve and to credit us with the perfect life that we could not live such that when you look at us, you see only your son and you smile upon us and you throw open the veil to the Holy of Holies to the heavenly places and you say, welcome home. Oh Lord, I pray for any here tonight who have not yet been welcomed home that they might cry out to their mediator for mercy because Jesus promised that all who come to him will be saved. We thank you and we praise you for this good word from God from Leviticus. In Christ's name we pray.